Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. According to the police officer I spoke to, they went through a list of questions in order to ascertain whether or not she was safe and determined that she was okay to be on her own on the streets of Victoria, barefoot in November, and they left her there. That was the last time anyone ever saw her. You are listening to Emma Filipoff is Missing, a series by The Nighttime Podcast. Welcome to the final installment in this series covering the still unexplained disappearance of then 26-year-old Emma Filipov. To conclude this story, I'm going to move past my discussions with those close to Emma and instead consider the story as a whole from our current vantage point. That point being seven-ish hours deep into a mystery with almost as many rabbit holes as there are broken hearts. In this episode, much like we did in part two of this series, I'm going to embrace my curiosity and explore some of the more sizable rabbit holes I've encountered during this tragic journey. To join me for this, I've called upon a friend and a past guest of Nighttime who's also explored Emma's story as a result of their work as a writer for Vice.com. Our guest, Tyler Hooper, is a writer and journalist based out of Victoria, B.C., whose work, like mine, often dives into Canada's more mysterious side. Tyler and I first got acquainted in 2017 when he was conducting research for an article about Emma's case, which went on to be published on Vice.com. When I decided to wrap this series up with a discussion, Tyler was the obvious choice. So let's dive in. Tonight, in the conclusion of the nighttime series Emma Filipoff is Missing, We'll be joined by Tyler Hooper for a discussion on all things Emma Filipoff. So, Tyler, I, I can't thank you enough for joining me. I'm, I'm so excited to, I guess, break down this case with you. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on, Jordan. I really appreciate um, having, uh, you know, having been on the show before and now coming back in to help you wrap this up. Yeah, and it's you're the perfect person because I think you and I kind of had like parallel sort of investigations, quote unquote, into this story. Like I did the series of of podcast episodes, and during that, you released the article on on Vice. So maybe as as a way to introduce yourself, tell me a bit about about you and what you do, and in this piece you wrote for Vice about Emma's story. 
Yeah, so over the last few years, I've uh, written some feature pieces for primarily Vice Canada, uh, a few other publications, CBC and the Vancouver Sun. But uh, And I, uh, I moved out to the West Coast of Ontario about five, six years ago. And uh, I think it was around one of the anniversaries that I first heard about Emma's case. And, uh, you know, trying to be an aspiring journalist and writer at the time, there was just something about uh, her case and disappearance that kind of pulled me in. And, uh, you know, I ended up being able to write a uh, feature piece uh for, for the anniversary a few years ago and uh, really kind of dive into the, the rabbit hole that is uh, Ms. Disappearance. Yeah, and, and you kind of took a similar approach as mine. Is your, your piece, like it told the story, but you spent a lot of time talking to, you know, friends and people close to Emma. Like I know you met with Micah, who is, who is a guest on my show, as, as well as Shelly, of course. Like, like during your your investigation or, or your work writing this uh, this article for Vice, was there anything you kind of tapped into that that really surprised you or anything that didn't make it in my series that you came across? Um, I mean, I think you did a really good job. You've done a really good job of covering this case. So I, I honestly think that if anything, when I was listening to your podcast, I was learning new things about the case that I didn't discover when I was researching it. But I would, you know, looking back, I guess I was kind of surprised and shocked about the diversity of people I came across who knew Emma like she really did seem to touch a lot of different individuals um, not necessarily in the same social circle or social group as well as you know some of them wanted to talk to me on the record and some of them didn't so uh, you know the ones who didn't and, and agreed to it were, were in my story and I quoted them but the other ones unfortunately are are in a notebook somewhere in my big pile of uh, crap here on my desk but yeah I would say to me it was just talking to the different people who knew Emma in their own way. And she definitely seemed like she was a, uh, she's a very, very special person. Yeah. And, and I'm doing all this from Nova Scotia through the phone and the internet. Basically you had the a different experience where you're right in Victoria, right? Yeah, I live. Yeah. I live pretty much like, uh, yeah, within like 10, 15 minute walk from downtown Victoria. Yeah. So you, you've been to, and I guess frequently see the, the places mentioned in the story, like the Empress Hotel and the Redfish, Bluefish, uh, fish shop on the waterfront. Yeah, I work uh, about a five-minute walk, uh, not even, maybe two minutes uh, from the Empress. And that uh, right where um, the Redfish, Bluefish is, that area, there's a bench uh, kind of up on Wharf Street that on my lunch breaks on nice days I go and read. So, yeah, I'm, I'm always in that area. And uh, especially, well, it's January now, but, um, you know, back in November and stuff, walking around there with the rain, um, it's hard not to think about uh, Emma and trying to retrace her steps sometimes. Mm-hmm. And with so much time passing through since her disappearance, do you see much about Emma in the city? Like, do you ever see missing persons posters or anything about Emma in the city? Like, do people there know about this story as much as I think they do? Well, to answer the first part of the question, I don't I haven't seen missing persons posters uh, for Emma uh, in a while, I put some up myself actually uh, back uh, uh, when it was, uh, I think it was in September or in the fall. But I will say, when the topic of Emma is brought up, nine times out of ten, people know what you're talking about and what case it is. Uh, and right away, there's intrigue. Uh, I will say that with, with pretty much authority that everyone I've talked to has either heard of it or wants to know more about it. Interesting. It's hard for me because I kind of live in this sort of bubble of my the podcast and the different things that I that I cover. Like I, I get so obsessed with the cases that I almost lose perspective of what they mean to other people. And and one thing I find is like to me, I think of Emma's case as kind of like one of the most well known, if not the most well known, Canadian missing persons case. I've 
online when I'm kind of I'll be writing and explaining something to someone, I will I'll refer to that sometimes. Like if I'm talking to internet people internationally, I may say, you know, this is Canada's or one of Canada's most well-known missing persons cases. Do, do you think that to be true as someone who doesn't live in my bubble? Like, is would you say Emma's story is one of Canada's most well-known missing persons cases? I would say, yeah. And I mean, you have to, just all you have to look at is all the American podcasts that have covered this as well. Like, it's gotten quite a bit of coverage through writers like myself, podcasters like you, and a bunch of other people. So I would say, yeah, it's one of the more well-known missing persons cases, probably in North America, just from, you know, in, in terms of people who listen to these kind of cases and, and like the true crime uh, genre. Yeah, and I think a, a lot of that, well, for one, a lot of it has to do with the Finding Emma documentary that CBC did. That was just so well done. And the fact that CBC puts so much of their stuff online free. But the, kind of the reason that I, I brought that up, the idea of a, if it is or one of the most well-known cases, is like, do you think there's much more attention this case can get at this point? Well, I think there's there will be some more attention given to it, um, and and I think there there can be probably more done. I think it's tough though because when you don't have new information, how do you you know how do you go beyond the podcast, the great podcast series you've done, you know the articles that have been written, the documentary by Fifth Estate, um, you know it's really hard to take a new angle and make the story fresh and get people interested. And I think that's generally a, a big struggle with a lot of these cases, especially once they go on for a few years. They only seem to really ping around the anniversary, and then unfortunately, the rest of the year uh, things are pretty quiet. So I guess what I'm saying is I am hopeful. I really hope someone else can can come in and maybe use a new medium and approach the case in a different way, and maybe that will shake something loose. Um, you know, I think as time goes on, I, I think something has to happen though. Like something will have to be found. A new piece of evidence will have to be uncovered or someone will have to come forward um, like, you know, people have in the last few years and make claims. Uh, so there is something to pursue. Otherwise, you know, it could be quite tricky, I think, to to hash out much more of the story because I think it has been covered quite extensively at this point. Did, did hearing the different guests on my show, like we had Shelly, Julian, Ellen, Michaela, Micah, and then Connor, like hearing all of their story, did that change your perception of what you knew? Like, was there anything that really came out that surprised you or shocked you? Yeah, I think uh, kind of what I alluded to earlier was everyone was so different yet their their memories of Emma were all very similar you know just talking about Emma's behavior and and what she was doing and how and how she acted seemed very similar across the board and that struck me as uh, struck me as very interesting uh, so that I really appreciated because I think that really helps paint a picture of Emma as a person and not just as a, as a statistic uh, mm-hmm. you know on a missing persons page yeah like what I found and I, I think I explained this in the episodes or in the series but I found like looking at Emma's story and digging into any one of the leads, be it the credit card or, you know, how she appeared on video at the YMCA. Like I felt like all of those tips or leads or whatever you want to call them, like there just wasn't enough to any of them because at the whole time I was, I was always left going back to like, what was with Emma though? Like, cause it's, it's all so mysterious. Like my plan by going through all the people and interviewing them in the order I did would be to, in the end, not so much understand what happened, but understand 
what kind of made Emma tick. And once I then I felt like I my theory being once I understood Emma, all these different clues and things she did would make more sense. And to me, like, I feel like it worked because in the end, listening to the various people's accounts from Ellen talk, describing Emma's childhood with, you know, Emma being scared her car was unlocked, like almost to an obsessive level. Then getting to Michaela, who described, you know, Emma living in Victoria and going around like uh, spreading leaves out like that's just a really strange thing to do. And there's no way around that. Then hearing Micah describe her last encounters with Emma and, of course, hearing the different things Connor said, it's so clear the decline in Emma's kind of mental strength, I guess, is how I would put it. Like, by the time we get to hearing Connor describe Emma, he describes her as, like, this almost, like, a monk-like personality who is just sitting down in the waterfront basking in the sun eating only fish, as opposed to the version we heard prior where she was, you know, playful and doing all these these fun things. It's, I just, I find it so, in my mind anyway, it's so clear, the, the decline. Yeah, the decline is very clear. I think the one thing I really struggled with is I had the same approach going into it that I wanted to understand Emma more as a person. And, and if I could, that would maybe lend some credibility to some of the theories that are out, out there, which I know we'll get into later. But what I found was the more people I talked to, the more I wasn't really sure how much I could get to know Emma. She sounds so unique and free-spirited in her own way that you can tell even the people that are close with her lacked some sort of understanding. And I think that's why no one knows what's happened to her because I don't think anyone really knew where her head was at. You you do see this kind of, you know, linear, you know, um, dissension of, of, you know, what you kind of said her, uh, you know, her mental state, I guess. Um, but it is really interesting to see that through the different perspectives of people like Connor and, and, and Micah and Michaela and them all having very different experiences. I think to me, um, Connor was one of the more uh, interesting people you interviewed, not because of it being Connor, but because he really hadn't been talked to a lot before. Um, so I almost felt like that was a new new perspective on Emma that the documentary, uh, The Fifth Estate, didn't cover and articles previously hadn't really covered. So yeah, to me, it actually created, I guess what I'm trying to say is, yeah, I agree there's that linear dissension of, of Emma's state of mind, clearly, but it still, to me, doesn't, th- there's not a lot of clear directions of what happened. We All we know is that things weren't going well and then she went missing. But other than that, yeah, a lot of it's conjecture, right? I, I think I could interview everybody who's ever met Emma until I and they are blue in the face. And it's it's still going to end with the same result is that just like her emails to her friends and family being like poetic and dreamy, everything she did seemed to be that way, both in terms of her personality and even her actual behavior. Like when you look at these videos of her, like buying the credit card and peeking out the window as if she's being followed, it's just like everything is so vague and it can be read so many different ways that it's, it's just a complete open book. No matter how much I learn, the book is equally open. Well, yeah. And every person you interview and talk to, it it almost creates a different chapter in that book. But uh, yeah, it's definitely, it's one of those cases that I think one of the reasons that you have so many listeners and, you know, I think my article was so well received was because it is really fascinating once you delve into it to the point that it almost drives you a little bit nuts because there's so many non-answers. So I think it's, you know, I think it's going to take maybe a few more people to come along and and do something, um, 
you know, a little different with, with hopefully some new information. I think that's really what it comes down to is that unless there is a new lead or something else comes up, um, you know, what really, what more can be done, I guess, you know, that's going to be useful and helpful at this point. Initially, I had planned to take the interviews further than where I left off with Connor. Like I, I was, I was hoping to do, I think three more was my initial plan when I was kind of planning this all out, but they just couldn't come together. And the idea for the three of them, I'll, I'll kind of explain them and, and cause I'm curious on your thoughts on these people too. But the way I saw it is like following Emma's life chronologically, I saw Connor being like close to Emma, say the about a month prior to her disappearance. But there was this little period after she lost touch with Connor and after Micah saw her standing outside the shelter, you know, among the crows and in the rain and all that. There's this little period of time where things really seem to be hitting rock bottom with Emma. And this is the point where she starts calling Shelly and, you know, making pleas to, you know, to getting help and getting home and all this stuff. So I kind of thought there's a few people who had encounters with Emma during this period that I would really be interested to talk to interested in talking with. One of course was basically someone from the shelter and, I know that's not going to, I knew that wasn't going to happen. I, I got very close to emailing them a couple times, but every time I did, I would just be like, I'm not even going to waste my time. Like if they won't talk to Shelly, they're certainly not going to come on my podcast. And they're probably also pretty worried about, no, I wouldn't say worried, but pretty protective of what they say because they don't, probably don't want to be involved in, you know, a lawsuit or, you know, say anything that could get them in trouble. Confidentiality, so, all that sort of stuff, right? Yeah. All that stuff, of course. Yeah. yeah. So regardless, I would be really curious to hear the people to, des- to describe from the shelter describe kind of those last few weeks uh, before Emma disappeared. But we do get a good glimpse of it from what Shelley had told us. Um, in the first part uh, of my series, Emma uh, Shelley described basically when she was continuously going to the Santa Merriman, and they were describing Emma uh, not being herself and staff being kind of scared of Emma because she seemed kind of wild and unpredictable. So I would like to ask them some follow-up questions to that, but I think even without getting to, we have a pretty good idea of kind of what was going on there. Um, the next one would be I would love to talk to the cab driver that had her in the car the night of the of her disappearance. He uh, he was the guy he had picked her up, spent uh, I th- I don't know exactly how long. I think he had spent about 20 minutes with her cuz he picked her up, gave her the price to get to the airport. She wouldn't pay it. He offered and he he then dropped her back off where he had picked her up a few minutes prior, but then he agreed to let her sit in the car and just like chill basically. Um, but I would just like to hear, I would like to just hear him tell me about what happened in the car. I don't, I don't know if there's any information there, but I think just hearing it may help paint the picture of what was going on just prior to her disappearance. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, really for me, I mean, the cab driver would be interesting. I think, you know, having been in a lot of cabs myself, uh, I imagine a lot of weird things happen to cab drivers. So I think maybe sometimes, you know, maybe something that at the time seems a little odd, um, you know, is kind of just dismissed as well. This is part of the job. And, you know, you kind of pick up people in different places and different mindsets at times. So I think it would be interesting. I, I think the shelter is really where um, some answers might come from. I think I think my only hope is that, okay, if they're, 
not going to talk to people like you and me or Shelly, uh, then hopefully at least say they were honest and truthful and talk to police and the, and the people who actually are responsible for investigating things like these um, and actually have the power to compel people to talk about these, these, these things. So, and I, I don't know, I know there's probably confidentialities even with law enforcement in those situations. So, you know, it probably is tricky, but I, I do agree. It would be nice to hear a little bit more information about, you know, who she knew at the shelter, what she, what was she doing, what was she like, um, you know, we we have a we, we have some brief anecdotes, but not nothing, you know, really concrete in terms of someone uh, having a voice about her time there. So yeah, I agree, Jordan. I, I, it would be nice to to know a little bit more about that time. Yeah, and then my my plan was the last episode of the series. I wanted to be Dennis Quay, who's the guy who ran into Emma and eventually called the cops to report a woman in distress. He appeared in the fifth estate documentary and gave, I don't, I don't know how much he told them because they edited it and all that stuff, but you hear him describe that last encounter with Emma. But when I talked to Shelly about Dennis's encounter with Emma, she explained it in a lot more detail than, than we hear in the fifth estate. And that just kind of leads me to think like how much more is there? Like, I'd like to hear, exactly what he remembers about that night and the and the reason why i'd like to know is is i don't have any doubts that she was in some kind of crisis that was likely the majority of it existed in her mind um but there's still there's so much chatter and discussion online about her being a victim of foul play and being stalked either by julian or someone else like i would just i just think if we can hear dennis describe that in detail it may finalize any question of was she in the middle of something really, really intense or was it all just, you know, paranoia? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I tried to, um, I tried to reach out to Dennis as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I definitely don't blame him. I, again, though, I, I'm, I a hundred percent agree that that would be a great way to end a series right now, uh, with this case and with Emma, because he was the last person to one of the last people to see her. Um, so yeah, I mean, hopefully, I don't know if Dennis listens to this stuff. If he does, I think, you know, it might be easy to think that people like us are maybe trying to exploit him just for our articles or our shows. But I I really think that he, he, whether he knows it or not, he could have some information that, you know, could turn over a new leaf in this case, you know, if he, if he wanted to talk publicly. But I also, like I said, I understand why, why he probably doesn't want to. It's tough, you know. It was something truly unique that he experienced and certainly traumatizing to be that close to whatever happened. And again, it's a mystery, so no one knows what happened. But he was, you know, right there. And at the same time, though, he did nothing wrong. Like, he did exactly what someone in society should do. Like, he, he, he uh, according to what I know about his encounter with her, is he spent time with her. He comforted her. When he got a sense that things weren't right... He uh, just kind of ducked into a little restaurant and called the police. He watched Emma until the police arrived. And when he saw the police there with her, like he said in the Fifth Estate, he's like, I assumed they were going to put her in the car and drive away. And I waited a little while and left. Like it's, he did it. Well, he actually, he's done a lot more than what the average person does. All you need to do is go downtown in a major city. You'll see people that are in the middle of a mental health crisis. And you'll also see a thousand people walk by them with their heads down. Absolutely. And, no. Yeah. And whatever happened with Emma that night, I'm sure a lot more people than Dennis Quay walked past her and he was the one that intervened. 
Well, he did everything he 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 did it. He should have been more. Like he like you said, he called the police. He he stayed with her and assessed that something wasn't right. That she was, you know, something was going on, and he was he obviously was very worried about her. And he did the only thing that you can do in that situation is call the authorities, and they have a protocol for dealing with situations like that. And I just can't imagine, you know, you you call the police and you hope that they're going to help help Emma and then and then you find out probably the next time you hear about her that she's gone missing like that's just got a you know I can't even imagine what that feeling would be like um think helpless is probably the yeah, word you're just exactly like, well, what the hell could I have what could I have done but I can't imagine how difficult that would be you know do you want to relive what that after you went through that and you and you did everything you thought you could It'd be pretty tough right So I think in in everything that we heard and all the different people that that we heard discuss Emma's story, we have a a pretty good idea of kind of what was going on in her life leading up to her her disappearance. But for whatever reason, a week, two weeks maybe before her disappearance is when things seem to really hit a fever pitch. Something seemed to happen about two weeks or so before her disappearance that set this that set this off. I have a, a kind of a few things that I've come across that really kind of made me think. But before I get to them, do, do you have any thoughts on kind of this this idea of what really set this off? I definitely do. Um, and this is a tricky part of of this whole disappearance case. Is that I, I well I don't see there being a definitive answer to this. I think we have an answer that something did happen. Or something did light the rag, as you kind of, to use that analogy. Um, You know, I think, in my opinion, I think it's pretty safe to rule out drugs or alcohol. Because I don't think, from my interviews, that um, Emma was abusing either of those things. Again, I, I have heard people say... She did use drugs, but I have never found any concrete information to suggest that she was an addict by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, I, I, I knew she, you know, I've heard that she liked her vodka and liked to drink sometimes, but I mean, so do I. So, I mean, I don't really know. I, I don't really get the sense that she was abusing substances per se or, or see the proof in that. Um, I tend to think that given Emma's nature and w- how people talked about her even leading up to this, uh, and given the age that she was, I think she was kind of primed for some sort of mental health episode. And I think that is kind of that age that she she would have been um, around that time is kind of peak when those things manifest itself. Um, and I think given the environment and all the other factors we talked about, you know, um, I think that's probably more likely. Um, but again, I don't know. I can't I don't I, I, I can't point to a single instance where that would have changed maybe her time at the shelter. I mean, that's gotta be a pretty rough way to live. Uh, and I'm sure it didn't help, but, uh, but yeah, I'm curious to hear what you think about this because it is kind of a contested issue, uh, with people who, who follow this case. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It is. And it's and like you said, it's like there, I don't think there's a definitive answer, but there's just kind of a few things that really seem to, to set it off. Um, the, the first one really and this takes place basically the day of her disappearance is so we know the story of her calling Shelly and saying, you know, mom, come help me, fly me home. And then calling back and saying, you know, don't bother, not today and putting it off. Shelly 
when Shelley found out that Emma was staying at the women's shelter and realized that things were really bad, she um, she had decided, and we heard her describe this in the episode, she had decided, I'm just going to go anyway and not tell Emma and just show up there and, you know, make sure my daughter's okay. Right. But at least someone who worked at the shelter had talked to Shelley and knew she was coming. And I don't know for sure if Shelley said, don't tell Emma or what, but the last time Emma was in the woman's shelter, and this is, I don't know exactly the time, I think it was about six o'clock or five o'clock on the day she was, that she disappeared, Emma was, came into the shelter for a short amount of time, apparently was super agitated and, and basically freaking out and saying things that in, included, like, my mom is coming here, I, my mom is coming, I, you know, I got to get out of here or whatever, but Somehow, Emma appears to know that Shelley was coming, and I don't know when she would have found out. Maybe she found out the day before, and that was why she was—maybe she had a plan to get out of the city or something before Shelley came, and that's why she was buying the phone and the credit card. Who knows? But the fact remains that Emma appears to have known Shelley was coming, and given Emma's um, state at that point, I think that would be— a pretty uh, a, a lot of anxiety to dump on her and stress and maybe that could have been a part of something that led her to flee if she did leave the city because again she was she was last seen just standing on the on the intersection we don't know where she left and maybe she just you know stuck out her thumb and hitchhiked and took off who knows but i think her knowing that Shelly was coming and talking about that. I think like there's, I don't think there's any way around the fact that that's important. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely correct. And uh, I, I think again, I, I don't know how she found out about that either. Um, you know, that her mom was coming, but you're right. It did seem to upset her. And I, I don't necessarily think it was because she didn't want to see her mom. I think maybe she might've been embarrassed too. Like, you know, because she had had those phone calls and maybe, yeah, I don't know. Like who, who, it's hard to know what her motive would have been and her, why she reacted the way she did, but I don't see it as being completely uncharacteristic, especially given what she was going through. But I definitely agree. You know, it's, it's significant around that time. Yeah. I'll just read you um, the, the official website for Emma's, Basically, the Emma's disappearance, the website that Shelley maintains, it has a detailed timeline. And I just uh, I, I just opened it up and I have this entry in the timeline. Basically, it says that and this is the day of Emma's disappearance, just a couple hours before she disappeared. It's at 6 p.m. It says Emma goes to the Sandy Merriman shelter. Witnesses at the shelter report Emma becoming very anxious and upset when told by a staff member that her mother is on the way. She storms out the front door, and one resident tries to run after her, but quickly loses sight. And she she reports Emma having mixed feelings of relief and fear about her mother's arrival. Though though Shelley spoke with the staff on the phone the day before, she did not tell them she was heading to Victoria. That's that's the whole thing. So there's there's quite a bit in that paragraph, but I think it's all important. Yeah, I agree. It's it's odd too, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's absolutely odd. And what? I'll tell you, um, I never mentioned this on the show or anywhere else before, but the in that paragraph, it mentions the fact that uh, one resident tries to run after her but loses sight, and this resident reported Emma having mixed feelings of relief and fear about her mother's arrival. This resident, it's another woman who is living at the women's shelter and had 
formed a um, a close kind of friendship with Emma. This was a slightly older woman who was seen as sort of like almost like a motherly figure to Emma for a period of time in the shelter. I had uh, I was I really wanted to know what happened that day and what Emma had said to her and if Emma in fact did know Shelley was coming or if this was all a misunderstanding. I wrote to this girl and we talked back and forth. At one point she agreed to come on the podcast and and tell me about that day, but it very quickly devolved from yeah, let's come on the podcast to basically like are you going to edit my words to make it the government sound good. Uh, so I, I wasn't completely getting what she was saying, but she did say some things that kind of gave me an idea of what she what she had to talk about. What made the most sense that she said to you? Here's some things that she said that were interesting. One is that um, I don't want to talk about her state, but she was healthier than everyone who surrounds her altogether. And then it says in all caps, find the perpetrator and focus on that. There's a lot of evidence. It also says uh, someone was after her. Obviously, there's evidence, and it's more than one people. Ask the people who have the evidence. So I don't know. I kept. I would respond and like, this is what I'm interested in. Like, can we talk about this? I'd, I'd like to know what evidence. She then ended her conversation or her communication with me with um, talk with all the volunteers about a suspect who was following Emma, the only one who followed her. She left her job because he was harassing her there. Oh, wait. And then it says, and there was harassment from where she came from, which is probably why she left. I was thinking, is this girl referring to Julian? And because she said harassment where she came from. I wrote, like, are you talking about when she was in Perth and Julian? And she didn't respond. So I don't really know in the end what this what this person had to say because they couldn't really articulate it. But um I think in the end, it kind of gives a glimpse of the type of people Emma was close to in those last few days. Because the messages I sent back and forth with this per- person is uh, definitely seems like talking to someone who wasn't uh, stable. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it, from my experience and in my, you know, as a writer, that, that's someone I would call a unreliable witness or source, like someone who clearly, you know, probably has their own issues. I get a lot of paranoia in that. Like when you read me that, that sounds like someone who, um, you know, is very, you know, talking about government control and manipulation and perpetrators. And I don't know if they were used the word stalker, but uh, following her, like, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe if she could elaborate on that, maybe there is something to that. But yeah, that, that seems to me like maybe that's a, just a very, um, you know, unstable person in some ways. And, and, you know, that's probably, to be honest, that would probably do more harm than good, maybe having her on your show. So it, it sounds like you probably have made the right decision overall to not, to not go that route. I mean, it would, it would have been nice if she had given you some, they had given you some more information about, you know, her time at the shelter and maybe who this perpetrator could have been. I mean, you know, I've talked to Julian several times. I actually just recently talked to him again. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I still don't see how you can suggest at this point that he was involved at all. Um, you know, cleared by both local and the RCMP, uh, local police, Vic PD and RCMP. And to this day, when I talk to him, he still sounds like um, he also sounds like he wish he could have done more, too, because he saw Emma on the day that, um, you know, she went missing as well. So I'm not sorry. I don't mean to completely change the focus here. I just I think overall, I, um, yeah, I mean, that's very interesting. I just to me, it sounds like a lot of unreliable information. And I'm sure you got that sense. Yeah. 
Message oh, absolutely. In yeah. the end, I was I was just like, okay, this is this is not uh, a healthy uh, thing to pursue for me, so I, I kind of gave up. But uh, either way, it's when I'm thinking of what may have set Emma off, I feel like her knowing that her mom was coming was definitely a big agitator. And if you think of Emma as whatever was going on, if you think of Emma as a pile of oily rags and in a basement somewhere, finding out that Emma was, uh, that Shelly was on the way is the equivalent, I think, of just taking the oily rags and just, you know, spreading them on the ground and throwing a few matches around. Like, I think it was really going to make stuff start happening. Um, that, that's the way I see it anyway. The next point, now this is a weird one. So there, as we talked about, a ton of podcasts have covered Emma's story. Generation Y, True Crime Garage, The Vanished, a whole bunch of YouTubers who do true crime shows. I've listened to pretty much all of it, but the majority of them seem to really just be telling the story. There's not a lot of kind of new ideas or speculation or whatever that goes into them. There is, however... One one podcast I'd listen to, it's not a well-known show, but it's really interesting. The show is called Cold Case Murder Mysteries. The host is a guy named Ryan Krause. Now, I don't know much about the show or about the guy who hosts it. It's basically one of those shows where it's a single host, like my show is, except instead of guests, it's, it's just him basically telling a story and giving his opinion. And what he does is he looks at unsolved cases like Emma's, and he evaluates them with a focus kind of on psychology. Now, I don't know I don't know if the guy has a background or an education in psychology, but the stuff that he was saying about Emma's case, I found it interesting and compelling, but more so after listening to this guy's episode and then interviewing Connor, some of the things Connor said really supported kind of this guy's theory. So uh, I won't explain this theory. What I did was I, I wrote to him basically saying, I'm going to talk about your your episode in the kind of the last episode of my Emma series. And I asked him basically to send me like a short clip where he describes his theory. Now, the clip he ended up se- sending me, I, I'm not going to play the full thing because it's, it's a bit it's a bit long, but I'll play enough of it to get the idea of, of it. So I'm just going to play it now because I, I know you haven't heard it yet. No, I haven't heard it yet. Okay. Hi, this is Ryan Krause, host of Cold Case Murder Mysteries, a podcast that examines unsolved cases through a psychological lens. I covered Emma's story in an episode called Changing Seasons and Other Reasons for Examining the Endgame of Emma Filipov. In that show, I discussed a theory about Emma's circumstances being aggravated by seasonal changes in weather, specifically as they relate to her emotional journey. So, I'm going to offer you a condensed version of that now. The average person might experience normal variations in emotional disposition as the weather changes, traditionally making them happier and more free-spirited during warmer months with longer days, while being more susceptible to bouts of mild depression in times when the days are shorter and temperatures turn cold. Unfortunately, those suffering various types of mental illnesses are often prone to exacerbated effects from such things in comparison to their healthy peers. Wow. He starts his episode by kind of explaining that his theory that 
a lot of Emma's depression or whatever was happening at the end was agitated by the change in weather. And I, when I first heard his, his episode, I was kind of like, yeah, maybe. I didn't think much of it. But then when I interviewed Connor, Connor had described his theory, basically, that like Emma had this kind of idyllic life set up where she was spending basically all day in a state of homelessness, sitting around the Victoria waterfront and basically just hanging out down there. And he, he had described one of the last conversations he had with Emma was her telling him, Things aren't going well. And he, she, he basically or she basically described like that the rain and the weather or, the, or maybe it was just the rain, that the rain was really affecting her. I can really recall the only time I thought she was exhibiting some signs of instability was maybe two weeks before the incident with uh, the neighbor. Uh, when I was like walking around the wharf and she was walking by me and we stopped chatted for maybe just five or six minutes but she was just saying how she was having a really hard time now that it was like raining i think when the summer ended i think she was having a really hard time adjusting to the fact that it was going to be a different kind of lifestyle and i think i i just kind of started to see how like anything but what she was doing in the summer that kind of like euphoria that like the simplicity of it all and the fact that she could be outside for 12 hours a day when that started to change i i that was the only real instance i can remember seeing this side of her that i thought was quite prone to like being quite anxious she just kind of seemed overwhelmed with life down at the wharf when it wasn't beautifully sunny and when i heard connor say that it made me go back and listen it again with like because I, I don't like this guy when he made this episode, he didn't know what Connor said, like because he made it before my interview with Connor. So he wouldn't have known that Emma had said that. So and that led me to like really the only other thing I did in terms of kind of trying to figure out if there was any weight to this was I looked at what the weather was like in Victoria leading up to her disappearance. And I was trying to kind of match what she said with Connor to a point in time and about the rain. And sure enough, it was when you look at the weather in Victoria, it's beautiful uh, weather until about the second week of November, uh, maybe two weeks before she disappeared. It pretty much started raining. I think it was around the 10th of November and it rained straight through to her disappearance. And if somebody, if you were someone who for one was having uh, issues with your mental health, and then on top of that, were in this period of change with this horrible weather and maybe having some symptoms of like seasonal depression, like I, I could see that being kind of like a boiling pot for something to happen. Yeah, I um, I have to say that clip is pretty, I know it's condensed, but it's, uh, it's really interesting. Uh, I definitely want to listen to that full episode another time. Um, I have to say, speaking from first-hand experience, having lived in Victoria for five years now, um, the first few years I lived here, I didn't really notice my mood change in the winter. Being from Ontario, I think I was just excited I didn't have to shovel snow. Uh, but once uh, once that kind of wore off, I, I do have to say these last couple of winters, or particularly this one around November too, um, you know, I definitely felt a big dip in my mood. 
Um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly a moody person and I've never really felt like I get too affected by the weather. Um, you know, I am prone probably to, to depression and some anxiety, but not usually from the weather. And so when he was saying that, I was like, yeah, I, you know, I think that's very plausible. And I think, like you said, the, uh, the links between, uh, what he was saying and some of the stuff Connor described is actually quite chilling. Uh, when you, yeah. when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in his theory, uh, Ryan Krause's, it goes way deeper. Like this is just a short piece. His theory gets into the idea that when, if you were within some kind of psychosis or something, like like summer is a time of kind of like, uh, you know, growth and health and, you know, vibrance and all the, like a great time to enjoy yourself. Spring is like renewal and birth and all this. And if you're someone who really feels like a connection to nature, you can kind of have a relationship with kind of the seasons. Um, and, and I know Emma was really into nature and I'm thinking about her and her taking Michaela on this walk where she's spreading out the leaves and all this stuff. But anyway, what Ryan Krause's theory moves into is if you are connected with kind of the language of the seasons, I think is how he put it. Fall is the time of year where everything is like dying and withering away. And so somebody who is deeply connected to nature in that way would, could be affected by it to an extent way beyond what the average person may be. If you, the average person have something like seasonal affective disorder, you automatically correlate winter with depression. Yet, when you have a person afflicted with something as serious as psychosis, which could lead to a literal interpretation of what happens in winter, it means death. It seems on its surface, his theories seem a little out there. But thinking of everyone I talk to, it's just there's little pieces of something everyone told me in in his, I guess you'll call it a theory. But um Anyway, like kind of what I'm getting at is I think between the changing of the seasons, finding out Shelley was coming, I, I think these are kind of things that played into whatever was going on. I don't think this is these are have anything, any responsibility in what happened. But I think these are just I guess I'll call them like mitigating factors that help yeah. stir things up. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that's. Uh... It's really, really interesting, and I want to listen to more of the clip later. I Just on first impression, though, there is something compelling about that, and I think at the very least, you know, that probably is a mitigating factor. So that's, that's, thanks for playing that. That's, that's really intriguing. Something that's been talked about a lot by a ton of people is the police involvement in Emma's disappearance and their handling of the case. Why don't you just jump in and just tell me your thoughts on the police involvement? Yeah, this is this is a little tricky because I, I actually think my... Oh, I don't really have an opinion, but maybe my, my thoughts have shifted a little bit since I did the article. I think there is, there is some leg- legitimacy in, in criticizing the police... I think one thing is the fact that they spent 45 minutes talking to her. I think they, at the very least, if they had spent 10 and sped off, then I think then I could think you could say, well, did they even really check to see if she was, you know, how she was doing? But if they spent 45 minutes with her um, and were really talking with her, then I think, you know, they must have had reason to, to think that, 
you know, she she was okay. I mean, you know, people say she was barefoot and that should have been a big red big red flag. But I mean, all the interviews I I heard you uh, you know heard you in, and then also with the people I talked to, Emma liked to walk in bare feet all the time. So it really actually wouldn't be that strange for her to be barefoot. I mean, the police wouldn't know that, so maybe it's a little strange that they didn't um, take that as more of a sign of of maybe something wasn't right. But uh, again, I think this is a tricky issue because I think it's easy in hindsight to to both blame the police and also say, well, they were just doing their job. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And But now I got something else to, I don't know if I told you I have this, but after I release, like often when I release the episodes or about any topic, I'll get emails from people who have some experience uh, in a professional sense with whatever the topic is that's coming up. What I was really excited about when I began releasing these episodes um, about Emma is I got a, an email from a police officer um, giving their opinion on the police handling of it. And now I've, I've taken a lot of the email out um, that's not relevant to kind of what we're talking about, but I'm, I'm going to read you a part of it. And again, like you, I, I think the police... Um, uh, some of the criticism is justified, but this police officer who emailed me kind of described the job in having similar experiences as what these police likely had when they approached Emma. And it just kind of led, like, I like to take an issue and always play devil's advocate or try to look at it from both sides. This email really allows me to look at the situation from the police perspective. So I'm just going to read it to you. <clears throat> So it says, now this isn't uh, like a Victoria police. This is someone in, in the United States. So it says, I'm listening to your episodes and something strikes me. Before I get to it, though, let me say this is so tragic and yet not new or an isolated incident. There are so many people who go missing and there is an alarming upwards growth of people suffering from mental health issues. Unquestionably, it's very tragic. In your podcasts, you, as well as Emma's mother, repeatedly state that Emma was barefoot on a cold November night. However, standing or walking around barefoot in the cold does not indicate in any way that someone is a danger to themselves. It's also repeatedly stated that the Victoria police officers spoke with Emma for 45 minutes that night, but then let her walk away instead of helping her out. Here's my take on that. So now they're going to give their take. So it says, the states in Canada don't have exactly the same laws. I'm from the states, so I can only speak from this side of the border. But I'm pretty confident our laws are similar in the end, even if they take different routes to get there. I recently retired after 24 years of law enforcement, and I've dealt with, mul and I've dealt with mental health issues on a nearly daily basis. While working on the road, there were very strict guidelines we were required to follow in order to take someone in custody against their will. By saying, take someone into custody against their will, I mean that in the States, we cannot force a person into our police car against their will without probable cause that a crime had been committed and the person you're taking into custody more likely than not committed that crime or the person you are taking in custody is a danger to themselves or another by their word or their actions. Period. End of story. In the, state, in the States, it comes down to our rights against illegal search and seizure. Our highest courts have determined that if someone is placed in a police car or detained in some other way against their will when a crime has not been convicted or this person more likely than not did uh, more likely than not did not commit a crime 
or by word or action, this person does not pose a threat to themselves or another. They are a victim of a legal seizure by the police. Now, getting back to Emma, if the Victoria police didn't feel Emma was a danger to herself, then they would have talked to her for a few minutes and walked away. But they didn't. In her mother's words, they talked to her for over 45 minutes, standing out in the cold. They would, they would not have just passed the time chatting with Emma, not for that long without good reason. I've been in the same situation that I suspect they were in. They, they likely felt something was wrong and wanted to help, but didn't have enough, just, enough information to justify doing something. They may have been trying everything they could to talk her into letting them escort her somewhere or calling an officer with a car to give her a ride to a friend's house, all the while hoping to get enough little tidbits of info to justify taking her into custody or taking her to a hospital or something similar. As I said, I've been in this situation many times and have responded to calls where I was hoping the person would slip up and say they might be thinking of hurting themselves. Anything that would allow me to legally take them into my car and transport them to a hospital where they can get help. I don't think for one minute the Victoria police officers didn't care and just walked away. I think they cared, but their hands were tied, just as mine had been many times. And that's the end of it. Wow, yeah, that's... um. That seems very honest and candid and also very uh, useful. Um, I think, you know, like I kind of alluded to, I think the fact that they did talk to Amber for 45 minutes shows that they did have some concern and probably were worried. But, you know, you can't, you know, like you said, you can't just drag someone into the back of your car if they haven't, you know, put harm on anyone else or are talking about putting harm on themselves. So, I mean, yeah, I think that's um, that's really, really interesting, Jordan. I... Um, it's really nice that um, he heard that or they heard that and they decided to write in and, and give you that information because yeah. I think that does provide some additional context to the to the police in that situation, right? Definitely, because it's really easy to think like, you know, you hear Dennis tell his story, Dennis Quay tell the story of her being, you know, disoriented. She didn't want to walk through this tunnel and, you know, she wasn't really talking. Then you... It makes you think like the police encounter this woman shoeless on an intersection, disoriented. You would think that that would be grounds to just take the person and stick them in the car. But at the same time, if if you like to play devil's advocate, if you have police just going around collecting people that are being strange and unusual, there would be a lot of people getting arrested or taken into custody and taken to hospitals all day and all night. I, I, I'm not ready to accept that. The Victoria police did a stand-up job of handling the case, but I am willing to see it from this point of view and understand the system, the systemic problems, I guess, that would lead to this. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to fix it, but without any question, the way mental health is dealt with, it's just, it's not okay. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it speaks to a broader issue. I will say this from what I what I have heard from people who have dealt, dealt, did dealt, deal with the police in this instance. Um, I don't think I would put too much blame on the two uh, officers who responded. But I do think uh, from talking to Shelly and others about the way the police handled the follow-up, even the first press release they released about the case, um, they have dropped the ball at certain points. Um and, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know the protocol for detectives, um, you know, dealing with families in these situations, but I do think from what I've heard, um, 
that uh, it was more after the information, you know, there wasn't a lot of information being given to Shelley and, and what was really going on. So that to me is more upsetting than, you know, these two officers who, like you said, were probably bound and still spent 45 minutes and then they probably got another call or they realized they had to go. So yeah, it's, it's difficult, but I, I do like you highlighting the mental health aspect because I, I think that is kind of the important takeaway from this for sure. Yeah. So I guess in the end, we're, we're pretty much back where we started with, there's a few possible outcomes. Now, these outcomes were discussed in depth on the Fifth Estate special. So I'm just kind of, I'm just going to list them out and, and you let me know if there's anything you want to add to any of these uh, or if anything that came up in the interviews with the, the various guests relate to anything. So one possible outcome of what happened, and this is one that's always talked about, is the idea that Emma decided to basically walk away and end her life on her own terms by suicide in some way, uh, like an, an intentional act or decision. The things that support this happening are the fact that, yeah, she was had some kind of crisis going on. We're not really debating that. Also, leading up to this disappearance, she was throwing things away and giving away a lot of her possessions, including things that were really important to her. Um, and that is something that I'm not, of course, not an expert on this, but I've read multiple times that something people who are going to choose to end their life often will do before committing the act is is kind of like clearing things out. Uh, not to say that that's what she was doing, but it just kind of supports that but at the same time I haven't heard anyone tell me anything that would lead me to to think that this was the outcome but it's definitely a compelling explanation of of what happened that said nobody has ever found Emma so if the, if this is what happened I would be surprised that in a big city like Victoria someone could do that in somebody not find evidence of it having happened. Yeah, it's it's something I've definitely thought quite a bit about. Uh, from my experience, you know, talking to the people involved, it doesn't really seem like someone who has a plan, if I'm being honest. Um, it seems very chaotic and sporadic. Um, I think, if anything, um, she might have committed suicide, but not on purpose, not the intent. Um you know, kind of like an accidental, accidental, or um, you know, maybe the psychosis drove her to wander out into the woods, and she got exposed to the elements, um, and and didn't make it through that. I I don't think, in my opinion, yes, she was unhappy. Yes, she was going through some stuff, but she we've never once heard in an interview with someone saying that Emma talked about wanting to kill them, wanting to kill herself. And if there was suicide, it was, it was probably more of an accident or unintentional rather than a actual thought out plan. What do you think of that? When I hear people talk about their theory about Emma and their theory in any way involves her like making strategic, like planned decisions, especially ones where it's like, I think Emma is, you know, she ran away and she's living among the homeless. And I've even seen on like message boards people being like she could even be reading these messages right now to make sure we're not after her and stuff and like i don't think there's any chance or, or i don't think there's any evidence that emma was a in any way doing any kind of strategic uh reasoning as far as what she was 
what would become of her or what she was going to do. The idea of accidental death, I think, is the most compelling in my mind. One thing that I thought about when I was going back and redoing these episodes and stuff and listening to the interviews for a second or third time is, so Emma was last seen in the evening. Presumably she left downtown Victoria and went somewhere outside of the city, I'm thinking, is what most likely happened. Um, Because if not, people would have found her. But um, one thing that Micah has said, Emma loved going for these big, long walks, as we heard all the guests on my show describe. But in Micah's case, she said Emma would never go at night. She didn't like going out at night because she couldn't see. It was always during the day. She did not like going out at night. She also um, admitted to me that she had... um, she did not have very good vision. Um, she didn't want to get contacts or glasses, and I have no idea if she ever had them in her past. And so she said at nighttime it was very difficult to see things. So she, it would always take place during the day that she would do that. When we listened to the episode before with Michaela, Michaela said Emma walked all night. So somehow between Michaela and Micah, Emma's vision seemed to become a problem, making Emma not want to be out at night. Sorry, just before you forget, too, in the Julian episode, he talked about walking with Emma at night as well. Exactly. Um, Yeah, with him as well, that you're right. And now now you take Emma in a state of chaos the night of her disappearance, leaving downtown Victoria, presumably, in the darkness where she's not comfortable walking, if she did go out into the woods or anywhere near a body of water or whatnot in the dark, exhausted, in the middle of a crisis, like I think the idea of an accidental death becomes much more likely, I guess, is the word I would use. Even though it is remote, you still think some evidence would have been found by now, right? Like something. Um you know, even if it was an animal attack, which is super rare, but there are there are cougars and bears in the area. I mean, they're especially cougars. They've, they've been known to wander right into Victoria. So there, there are predators out here as well, um, especially in the middle of the night. So, yeah, I think I think that is probably most likely in terms of the scenario that you presented for sure. Yeah. And then we're left with basically the idea of foul play. And I guess. That is possible simply because there's no question she was vulnerable that night. And and somebody, like at, at any point, something, you know, someone become, can become a victim of foul play. But an attractive young woman, in distress, weak, disoriented, alone in a big city or outside of the city. Like there's there's no real evidence to support that that, that it happened. It's just... You can't rule it out, I guess. Like that will always, until some, until some answer is found, the idea of foul play or an abduction will always be there. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think it's, uh, I mean, I know that's certainly probably a thought a lot of friends and family don't want to go to, and there isn't a lot of evidence to support it. I mean, there are some general claims from people that she might have been being stalked but with no real evidence. You know, I, I had heard some stuff that um, one of the, uh, boys or men she dated in Campbell River might have might have had some weird behavior towards her. So I mean, 
that mixed with, like you said, being vulnerable, being weak, being disoriented in the middle of the night in November, not, not a time of year when people are out and about late. They're usually huddled at home because it's raining and it's, you know, not nice out. Like, who knows? I mean, people go missing all the time and are abducted all the time, um, you know, who aren't as um, exposed and as fragile as Emma was in, in her situation. So I don't think you can rule it out. Um, I just think in terms of you're going to look at the facts and the evidence, that's probably one of the least likely theories, I think. Um, just because, like I said, we don't we don't have any really evidence of it happening. Although I guess you could maybe say the prepaid card thing that was found over uh, near the Juan de Fuca Rec Center is maybe a little suspect, um, and that maybe maybe could be loosely linked to um, you know maybe someone getting the card from Emma or stealing it from her. I don't know. Again, it's all conjecture, but um, you can't rule it out. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. And the last one really being that she's alive somewhere, either, well, most likely living amongst the homeless, maybe in the downtown Lower East Side of Vancouver, maybe in another country living among the homeless. I, the big thing for me that goes against that is I just think like Emma had it had already gone too far and I think she would have had more interactions with police or women's or homeless shelters that would have eventually led to her be it being discovered who she was. Like her case is too high profile anywhere in Canada. I think she would, she would have been found by now or had some interaction with police hospitals or women's shelters. I just, I just can't see that being, you know, there's the idea of the green shirt guy that she's with him somewhere in Vancouver. I just don't see that as likely. How like think about how hard it is, like even to get on BC ferries to get to the mainland. Like there's cameras everywhere. Like at some points there would be some sort of evidence or timeline to suggest that you know there'd be some sort of legit sighting. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Whereas if she you know, met someone and, you know, there was rumor that she was going to meet a friend in Colwood. I mean, um, you know, there's this kind of, uh, uh, the, one of the more later things that I'm sure you want to talk about is someone saying they picked her up that night and that she was going to see a friend in Colwood. And, you know, if she ended up making it there and this friend wanted to go live on a commune somewhere on Salt Spring or on North Vancouver Island, like it would be pretty easy to disappear into the woods. Um, you know, there are a lot of people on Vancouver Island who come here because they don't want to, they don't want to live in typical society and they want to live uh, in a, with a group of people in the woods and grow their own food and do their own thing. So that's the only, that's, I guess what I'm trying to say is that's the only avenue where I could see it being likely. But I mean, her dad did say something really weird in the, in the, the documentary, the fifth estate one that it's going to take Emma to find Emma. I think that's what he said. Um, and I've asked Shelly about that and I don't think she even really knows what he meant by that. And, um, I've never actually talked to him, but that, that was kind of a weird thing where maybe you could associate that with like, well, Emma's kind of, kind of left to go find herself and maybe, you know, not being in society as part of that. But again, that's a stretch I think at best. Um, yeah, I, I, I would say out of the three, um, and I think the green shirt guy is kind of a red herring. I think that was just probably a, a, you know, an unstable person trying to attract attention, um, to themselves. Um, but yeah, I guess, sorry, what I'm saying a long winded way is that I think out of all three, like, unfortunately I, I tend to lean towards the first theory that, you know, some accident happened or, um, you know, we will find Emma's remains one day. I mean, I, I really hope she is still alive and out there. I just think as each year goes by, I don't know. What do you think? Does it get less and less likely that, that we find Emma? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it w- there was just too much going on, and it was too disorganized. If you think of her behavior that night and in, in the days and weeks leading up to her disappearance, she was reaching out. She was calling her mom for help. She was spinning wildly out of control, I think. She was throwing away her stuff. She was, you know, just kind of doing this d- disorganized kind of like, I always, I think in analogies, and I almost think of her as like, sliding down a cliff and she's just kind of sticking her nails in the dirt, just kind of trying to grab onto something to get a grip. So she's making phone calls. She's buying for no reason, buying a prepaid credit card when she had an actual credit card and she's buying that phone. And and I think there's no reason for it. I think it's just disorganized, desperate kind of acts. And I don't see that ending with her hitting her landing rock bottom, but landing on her feet and being like, I'm going to get a friend and go to a commune. And, you know, for the next eight years, no one will even find me. I just, I don't see that as the end result. Yeah. And, and I agree a hundred percent Jordan with everything that you said there. And I think it's just one thing I wanted to add. Cause I, it, it was something that I didn't put in my article. Um, but when I went, uh, I think it was for the five year anniversary when I went to the vigil here in Victoria, I, uh, we went for a walk as part of the vigil to kind of retrace Emma's steps to, you know, to where she worked and, and that sort of thing. And one thing that struck me and didn't really strike me before so much, and again, I have no, this is just me kind of thinking aloud really, but, you know, there's so many boats and sailboats and like really if you're going to slip away unnoticed uh, off the island, the best way would it be to do it in a boat. And again, there isn't really any suggestion to say Emma could have done that other than that she did know people who had boats or had access to boats. Um, but, um, that's something that I always thought was interesting and always worth mentioning. Again, I have zero evidence to support it. I just, it it was an overwhelming feeling as we were walking along the water, seeing how quiet and easy it would be to just get on a boat with someone you knew and slip away into the night and basically to disappear, um, anywhere. So, I mean, I guess that goes back to your, maybe your first theory, um, or, or sorry, third, third theory of, you know, living a transient lifestyle somewhere else. Uh, but again, I, I don't think her mental health and you know where she was um, in her in her own mental state would she wouldn't have been able to do that successfully. I don't think even with help. Since I guess either of us, since we've been involved in this and, and following the, I guess the day by day, week by week, month by month of the story, there's been hardly any new information that surfaced, which is something that I found so frustrating because it just seems like she literally just vanished. There's been some leads that come at, came out shortly after she disappeared, like the green shirt guy and whatnot. That was uh, mainly the stuff that was talked about in the fifth estate. But really since 2015, when I became involved, there's really only been that I know of two quote unquote leads. One of them was the, uh, a, a photographer took a photograph of just a street scene in Vancouver and managed to capture in the photo, just kind of in the the background of the photo, is a girl who looked a heck of a lot like Emma. Um, they eventually identified the woman in the photo to be a completely unrelated missing person who hasn't been seen since, like, I think she's been missing since, like, I don't remember, I think it was 2004 or something. But anyway, that's one lead that didn't lead to Emma. 
The only other one is, this is just last year, a new witness, eight years after the fact, came forward. Do you want to, I did an episode about this as well with Shelley. I ended up removing it from my feed because they ended up doing a search and nothing was found. So it was just kind of irrelevant. But why don't you, um, I'm, I'm thinking these are probably the only two things really that have come up during your time as well or, or, or what? Yeah, I mean, in terms of public leads, like things that, yeah, have come to, like came to fruition and were checked out. Uh, you know, again, I the, the green shirt guy was right before um, I got into that. But uh, yeah, the girl in the photo was interesting. Um, I think that was disproven pretty quickly. Um and then, yeah, this new witness is interesting. Um, I, I I don't know a ton about it other than, um, you know, what we've talked about. And um, I have talked to Shelly about it um, just in my separate phone conversations with her. And allegedly he picked Emma up somewhere in the kind of Admirals um, Esquimalt area of Victoria, not far from Victoria, and dropped her off at an intersection not far away, kind of leading into the Thetis Wanda Fuca area, which makes sense given where the card was found. I unfortunately, I, I um, you know, I don't really think it's it's that relevant or that uh, exciting. I personally wish this person had come forward a lot earlier. I think maybe that would have had some more use in building a timeline. Um, but coming, you know, forward all these years later, it, it's great. It's something, but uh, you know, it, it's it happened a long time ago now, so the lead quite isn't as fresh. Um, I maybe what I really hope is that it inspires other people maybe who interact with Emma that night to finally come forward and talk and share their information. Um, but I don't know. What do you, what do you make of it? Because I mean, I, I got, I got to admit, I did get a little, I don't want to say excited, but I got a little hopeful when I heard about that new lead. And then when I quickly talked to Shelly and found out what, what happened and, and what came of it, I was kind of back to where, where I started and, and just kind of more, even more confused, I guess. Yeah, I I feel, in a lot of ways, I feel the same. In the first episode I did with Shelly, the first episode in the series, she had talked about how often she gets contacted by people who say, you know, I saw Emma, and she kind of described her feelings on it. So we still get tips, we still get sightings. Unfortunately, occasionally, um, the tip or the, the tip that we'll get will say, I think I might have seen your daughter in uh, Edmonton in 2015. Well, that may be or may not be, but that's of no use. If we don't, if we can't respond to the tip immediately, then that tip isn't really much use to us. I kind of feel the same way about this lead. You know, it's, it's, it just kind of muddies the water a little bit, and maybe it adds a bit of theory as to what direction maybe she was traveling. But either way, it's like her credit card was said to be found out that way. So there was already that area was kind of already of interest anyway before this. So I don't feel like it really added anything. I don't know. I don't know what I think about it. But I was excited when I heard new information was coming. And then when I heard it was when I when I heard what the story was, it just it didn't. I was kind of like, oh, it's a shame that nothing can come of that. They ended up it ended up leading to a search, but the search found nothing. It was a dog search. But again, it's um, not nothing game of it. So that was kind of the end of it. I ended up doing an episode with Shelly. I interviewed her about this new lead and the search. But when nothing came of the search, I took the episode down just because it was it was kind of hoping up, hyping up something that just ended up being a disappointment. For people who are following this, I'm going to release it not on my feed, but on my Patreon so people can hear it just for context. But um, 
in the end, there really since I've been involved in this, there has been nothing new, and it's been frustrating and kind of leads to a feeling of helplessness because it's like I really do sincerely want to help Shelly in any way that I can and it's just it just feels like every it, it just it's all either dead ends or the complete opposite of a dead end where it's so vague and wide open that it's might as well be a dead end yeah so it's just there's like nowhere to go well and it's like where do you where do you focus your energy now you know that's the thing that I find this with whenever I come back to this it's like where do I pick up and start over again from where I picked when I, you know, with the article and stuff, it's like, where do you put the energy? You know, do you, do you suss it that more current lead is there, you know, things to go back and look over, maybe details that were missed. Like there's just so many options and, and it's such a rabbit hole that it is, um, you know, I think it is great that there are so many podcasts and articles and things still being made about it. And I really hope that, you know, things like your, your podcast, this podcast and, and, and other things will continue to come out because, Hopefully, like you said, someone can shake something loose. But right now, it's seeming very much like there isn't much to go on. And it's it, it's getting, I guess, well, I, I, it's frustrating. And I can't even imagine how frustrating it is for people like Shelly and people directly affected by this. You know, it's been, like you said, eight years and there's hardly been any updates. Um, so I think frustration is, is probably the best summary for, for a lot of people when it comes to Emma's disappearance. I want to thank you for joining Tyler and I for this slightly unfocused, but hopefully thought-provoking conversation. Tyler and I certainly aren't experts in much of anything, so take everything we said accordingly. The point of this conversation wasn't to disprove or even deflate any existing theories. This was simply my venue for exploring some of the more interesting rabbit holes that I've encountered during the telling of the story. In the end, what I've learned during all this is that Emma's story is tragic and deeply upsetting. Yet in answer to the outstanding question, where is Emma Filipov? At this point, it seems impossible to answer. The search for that answer, however, takes you past many interesting people and places and highlights many issues in our society. And although at the end, we're no closer to physically finding Emma, we did get a chance to learn a lot more about a truly special person. And with that, we will end the nighttime series Emma Filipov is Missing. But first, before we part, I'd like to give some thanks. I want to give a heartfelt thank you for those close to Emma who chose to take part in the series. Shelley, Julian, Ellen, Michaela, Micah, and Connor, I'm forever grateful that you allowed me to share your stories and your memories of someone you obviously cared very dearly about. As well, I'd like to thank those who joined me to discuss Emma's story. Tim and Lance of Missing Maura Murray, Tyler Hooper, Aaron of Generation Y, and Erica Schmidt. Thank you all. Next, a big thanks to Vox Somnia and Paragon Cause for providing some great musical and ambient themes I used in the series. And lastly, the biggest thanks of all goes out to everyone listening. Without you, nighttime would have had its dawn many years ago. And for anyone out there who wants more nighttime, please consider supporting my Patreon campaign. For a dollar a month, you can access the ad-free premium feed, which provides early releases of the episodes. 
And then, for just a couple dollars more, you can access the Nightcap After Show, in which I and the guests climb even further down the rabbit holes than what you'll hear in the main episodes. For this episode's Nightcap, I'm going to share a discussion I had with Shelley Filipoff in 2019. The discussion surrounds the alleged witness that recently surfaced, claiming he had picked up Emma while hitchhiking shortly after she was last seen by Victoria Police. Tyler and I discussed this lead briefly in the episode. This conversation with Shelley was recorded prior to the search, which sadly located no new info, but I thought listeners of this series would be interested in hearing the background on that search. If you want to hear this and my other supporter-exclusive episodes, you can access the premium feed by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And with that said, I want to thank the new members of the supporter group, Allie, Caitly, and Christy and Sue. Thank you for your generous support. And for anyone else out there who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me and by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Equivalent. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on and off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. I use the handle at NighttimePod. And if you have any story ideas or want to give feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. Now until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and contact me on social media. Give me your theory on Emma Filipoff's disappearance. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. Somebody somewhere knows something. She didn't just disappear. She couldn't just vanish. Somebody has to know something, Jordan. Somebody has to know something.